This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. The term intersex is a phrase not many people have an understanding of. People who are intersex are commonly referred to as having a difference in sex development, or DSD for short. Over the last few years, the term intersex has been dragged into the conversation around trans. In some circles, it has even been added to the LGBT group, i.e. LGBTQI. My special guest for today's episode is an intersex woman who might change the way you think about this stigmatised health condition. Claire Graham is the public engagement consultant for the charity DSD Families. DSD Families is an information and support charity for families, and every year in the UK, approximately 150 children are diagnosed with a DSD. That means there are approximately 2,300 children living with DSD conditions in the UK. They work together with families and their children, teens and young adults, and healthcare providers in the UK to raise happy, healthy, confident and well-informed young people who can speak up for the support they need. In this episode, we discuss Claire's experience of anxiety throughout her life and the DSD she lives with called Maya Rokitansky Kutz... Kutz... <laughs> I can't even pronounce this. Kuster Hauser Syndrome, or MRKH, as I will definitely be referring to it as on the pod. MRKH is characterised by the failure of the uterus and the vagina to develop properly in women who have normal ovarian function and normal external genitalia. Women with this disorder develop normal secondary sexual characteristics during puberty, e.g. breast development and pubic hair, but do not have a menstrual cycle. MRKH means Claire is unable to have children, and we discuss Claire's realisation about her fertility, learning how to live with it in adulthood, and also how it's enabled her to code switch between male and female social groups. She happily admits she often feels more comfortable in male groups as a result. We also discuss how intersex has been co-opted by sections of the LGBT community to wrongly state that sex is a spectrum and not biological fact. Her frustrations when people claim to speak on behalf of intersex people for their own political agendas, how children with DSDs can experience high levels of gender dysphoria and the consequences of that if the right decision is not made for their long-term health. I'm sure all of you listeners will find this episode as educational and informative as I will. So this is how my conversation with Claire Graham went. Claire Graham, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. Your journey is one that's, I would say, quite unheard of in the mainstream mental health conversation and definitely not one that's spoken about enough. So I'm very grateful to you for sharing your story. How are you? How are you getting on? I'm good, thank you. It's a nice uh, Saturday morning. Just uh, chilling out. Really looking forward to doing this today, talking to you. Oh, I'm very pleased to hear you say that. This pod's going to be as much of an education for me as I hope it will be for listeners. And I said that in the intro, Claire. So without further delay, let's start the show. Let's start the pod by talking about your own journey, Claire. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, 
Were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Claire we meet here? Okay. Oh, that's big. So, (laughs) well, as you said, I have a DSD called MRKH. In terms of my mental health, I've always had anxiety, although going right back to my childhood, as I was a child, I called it worry, not anxiety. I didn't have the vocabulary to describe it. This I now know is really common people with my DSD, although I didn't even know I had a DSD when I first started experiencing anxiety. That's something that has sort of gone through my life with me. I've learned different ways to cope with it. When I was younger, I used to get quite sick from Mm. anxiety. And I have at times in my adulthood, like experienced that as well. But yeah, I think that sums up my sort of mental health journey. (laughs) (laughs) You talked there about the anxiety and you said that the anxiety would get so bad it would cause you to vomit and also give you migraines. Migraines something I've suffered with throughout my life Claire and it wasn't until I got to like 18 maybe 19 where I actually figured out it was due to susceptibility to dehydration rather than anything. Was there a source for the anxiety looking back or any triggers that caused it? Was it schoolwork? Was it relationships or maybe subconsciously your DSD which we'll talk about in a bit? I'm not really sure. It started when I was very young and I think I just had um, sort of an ability to really sort of fixate on worries at times and make mountains out of molehills perhaps and then internalise a lot of that and not talk about it. So it was things like, this sounds really daft, thinking back to when I was really, really young, things like realising my parents would die one day, as morbid as that sounds. And I could then just fixate on that for a a long time as a a thing to worry about and just worry myself to the point of being sick. And at other times it's been other things. So when relationships haven't gone well or when certainly finding out my diagnosis and coming to terms with that over the years has triggered it again. I wouldn't say it's just one specific thing. You said that this level of anxiety or anxiety in general is quite common for people with DSDs. Have you got any evidence to back that up? And and how else does it manifest in people with DSDs? There's been quite a few studies into this. So I think it's quite common, often because we find out that we're different in our teenage years, so our formative years. And I think just finding out you're different and coming to terms with that and how you deal with that with other people is one of the triggers for anxiety. And just spend time like with myself I thought I would have children I thought everything was normal and then it suddenly wasn't and it was sort of that thing of having the rug pulled out from under you and I think that is often quite a big cause for anxiety and just understanding who you are as a person and what your life will look like worrying about acceptance as well I think as well you know sort of in relationships and things like that yeah there's multiple things You talked about acceptance there and during primary school you were caught in the middle of a row between two of your friends which raises this question of acceptance and the reason you wanted to talk about it Claire was the anxiety it caused you and the pressure they each put on you to pick their side. Can you tell me about this and and how did it impact your mental health then and now without obviously revealing too many details about their identities? So my two best friends they both had quite a lot going on in their personal lives, quite a lot of intense issues in their personal lives with family illness and that kind of thing. And they didn't like each other, and which didn't help the situation. Clearly. And I think part (laughs) of it was was kind of them looking for control of something that they could control, you know, as much as anything else. And therefore, controlling the friendship and the relationship was something that they felt they could and that gave them a feeling of, I don't actually know. I don't want to speak for them. I think that was it. I think it was a lot of it was to do with control on their part. And so 
I just ended up in, as a sort of a piggy in the middle between that. So one would fall out with me if I was talking to another one, and then the, and then I would try to be friends with that person, and the other person would fall out with me. Oh. Get quite nasty and quite personal. Girls, um, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given how different the mental health conversation was back then, Claire, your teacher did manage to spot the red flags and introduce the concept of journaling to you and the wider class. How did journaling help you express yourself here and did you carry it beyond primary school the journaling was so important I didn't realize that my teacher had noticed what was happening and she set up journaling as a class activity and we had a rule if we put the journal in the drawer of her desk she would read it so as soon as she introduced the journal I just felt oh this is for me and I wrote what was happening to me and I gave it to her to read and then she then took me to one side and talked to me so it gave me a way to express what I was feeling in like a calm way and to lay it all out and then also just a way to reach out to other people to ask for help which I hadn't known how to do up to that point. Let's talk about your DSD now Claire it's called MRKH I gave the full name in the intro very badly I think so I won't try and pronounce it again can you explain to the listeners what it is and you don't have to say it in full either but how does it affect your body what is the condition itself and when did you first discover you were a bit different from other girls? So MRKH, it affects the development of the reproductive tracts in females. So that means when my reproductive organs were developing, they didn't develop completely. I have ovaries, I have fallopian tubes, I have a uterus that's underdeveloped, I have a vagina that's underdeveloped, I don't have a cervix. That's my MRKH. In other women with MRKH, it could be different. They might not have a uterus at all. They might have a, a smaller vagina. We all have ovaries. So that's the sort of physical aspect of it Mm. I discovered I was different during puberty I obviously didn't stop my period I didn't know why that was so I had a few years of worrying and thinking it was different things and then I eventually was diagnosed at 18. Before we talk about the diagnosis you said for a few years you were quite worried that you might be male you might be a man and it was pre-internet so that might have been a good thing or a bad thing depending on your perspective That must have been so hard for you. Did you have anyone you could talk to about those anxieties at the time? I didn't talk to anyone about it because I didn't know how. And I didn't know how sensible my thoughts were to begin to talk to anyone about it. So I did a lot of worrying on my own. It isn't that we didn't talk about me not having a period. My mum would talk to me about it. But also I was a teenager, so I was very embarrassed about conversations (laughs) about things like that. So I didn't find it easy to engage in the talk about how I was feeling or my worries or or any of that. I really didn't want to talk about it, to be honest. Mm. Did you feel like at any point that you weren't a full human being or you weren't a woman or a full girl that was like all the others that you were in your class? Yeah, I definitely spent a lot of time worrying that I wasn't a girl. I'd read somewhere and I don't know where or I had some knowledge of DSDs, but I thought they might discover I had internal testes and that would mean I was a man of course that isn't what that means there are DSDs where women have internal testes and they're still women I didn't understand that and I just imagined that I would have to go around telling everyone I was a man it would be really embarrassing because then everyone would know this about me yeah I just felt quite sort of ashamed and embarrassed thinking about it and like I say I now realize even if that had been the case that wouldn't be what was Mm. decided I still wouldn't be a man but I didn't know that Let's talk about diagnosis then, because you were diagnosed, like you said, when you were 18, you had just left school and you were a week away from starting university. You were spending a lot of time in and out of hospital at this point. So 
Who's the Claire we meet here? And how did you feel when you were diagnosed itself? Was it validating? Was it a shock? Were you scared? I think it was a shock. I think I thought all the way through, I had, as you say, I was in that hospital, I had a lot of appointments. And I think I thought all the way through, they would fix me for want of a better phrase. And so when it came to the final diagnosis of this is what it is, and this is how it always will be, that came as like a a massive shock to me that there was no fixing. My older sister asked if it was inherited. And I remember laughing and said, well, it can't have been because if mum had had it, we wouldn't be here. And then realising that that meant that I wouldn't have children and I was like a full stop in the sort of evolutionary line. That was quite profound in like a sort of existential way because equally that isn't who I thought I was. I thought I would be a mum. It was quite sad, to be honest, I think is the best way to describe it. Your family were obviously naturally quite shocked when you were diagnosed and your sister was asking the doctors if the DSD was inherited. So is it important to state here for the listeners that DSDs don't just affect the person, but that person's entire network? Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I'm quite keen to highlight is the need for support, not just for the person diagnosed, but for the family as well, because they help us to come to terms with it and they have to come to terms with it too. And infertilities, it's difficult and it's difficult for everyone because it wasn't just that I thought I would be a mum. That was an aspiration other people had for me. Mm. So they had to come to terms with that. And then we now know, obviously, I didn't inherit this DSD from my mum, but it, it can be genetic. So there is a worry for the rest of the family that maybe this could occur in my nieces, for example. So it's a lot for people to take on board. You said being diagnosed felt like a grief. So was it a grief for children you couldn't have, for a life you couldn't now lead, or was it something deeper? I think it was really for the life I wasn't going to lead because I had a vision. Like most people growing up, I had sort of a vision of of what my adulthood might look like. And that wasn't going to be, and I hadn't planned for that. So I had to let go of my dreams for myself and then reimagine my life going forward without those dreams so I think it's that the letting go of what you think your life will be. When it comes to romantic relationships Claire obviously what happens in people's bedrooms is no one else's business except for that person however because of the DSD you said you began to feel anxious about dating you know you said if I got a boyfriend what do I tell them when do I tell them do I tell them at all and I felt, although my history is very different to yours, I felt a lot of similarities when it comes to my own mental health history, being very open about Venn and being open about my story. Did you find a solution to this? Because it's an eternal battle for people in this space like us with different pasts, but very important things obviously to disclose at some point. I talked about this a lot with my mum when I was first diagnosed. And we decided the best course of action was to be as honest as early as possible that doesn't mean that I meet someone and I tell them straight away because that would be inappropriate (laughs) but certainly if someone if I was dating someone and they were thinking about a future together it would be important that they knew that I couldn't have children because that might be very important for them I never wanted to be in a position where someone had been in a relationship with me then they found out and then they felt stuck because Mm. we had become attached to each other that wouldn't be fair on the other person. It wouldn't be fair on me. So that was kind of 
the solution we came up with was to just to try to be as honest as as early as possible but equally at an appropriate time because again it could look very strange on a first date to be saying to someone well I can't have children if they're not thinking of that (laughs) (laughs) you were married in your 20s and you've obviously now come to the conclusion that you didn't want children anyway even if you were fertile so how did that marriage affect your attitude towards your infertility and also your DSD? I wish I'd spoken about it more in my marriage to be honest we didn't talk about it I did as I said I would do early on I made it clear that I couldn't have children and kind of that was the one conversation we ever had and we never really talked about it again and I regret that because I had lots of different feelings through my marriage at 18 for all I was sad equally I wasn't planning on being a mum at that point so it kind of didn't immediately impact me when I was married then that was the point when I would have been having children it reopened that issue for me that there I was doing the thing that would have led to me having children and then I wasn't going to have children like I say I wish I'd communicated it isn't the reason that things didn't work out but I do wish I'd communicated that more and that I talked about it more As an adult, Claire, you're obviously not in your 20s anymore. I'm not going to say what your age is on a podcast, but who's the Claire we meet at this point? And and how have you learned to live with your DSD now and not just survive, but thrive with it? I've learned just to talk about it and not to be ashamed of it. It's taken a long time to get there, but being honest and open is much better than the alternatives in the past. In the past, there are times when I wasn't necessarily honest with people just because I didn't want to have to explain things. So people might ask, might say to me, like when I was married, people would say to me, when are you going to have children? And I would sort of dismiss it. Oh, we're not ready yet. Rather than just saying, well, we can't. I think like that doesn't help the stress and the anxiety. Now being brave enough to say to people, well, this is the reality, I think helps a lot. That's not to say that I'm completely on top of it. You know, I'm getting older now. And and again, like my female biology is becoming important because of things like the menopause. And I don't understand what will happen with that. So that can be quite anxiety inducing. But equally, I know to talk to people. I know to reach out and talk to people. And I know that people won't reject me or laugh at me or be unkind. Like you said, we've hopefully come a long way. But on this part of your life, you said to me off air, I'm not ill. I just want to go and talk to someone who can tell me things. So are enough clinicians, do you think, trained to treat and support someone with a DSD like yourself, male or female, I might say, and make them feel comfortable if you had to speak to a medical professional? Not really, no. To be fair, our medical conditions are very rare. Mine is about one in 5,000 women have MRKH. So... Often I can end up sitting in front of a doctor who doesn't know anything about MRKH. Often I'm the person educating the doctor, which sounds arrogant. I don't mean it that way. But often like they may have heard of other DSDs, but the, you know, there's 40 odd very rare medical conditions that fall under that umbrella. So a doctor who's not a specialist might not have a good grounding. In appointments, quite often I'll say I have MRKH because I don't know if it's relevant all the time. And then I'll have to explain what that means. And then quite often I'll have to wait for the doctor to, to Google to check that what I'm saying is is right. And that's quite stressful. I would love more doctors to be more aware, not that they have to know every detail. I saw one doctor and I was explaining her MRKH and she was saying, oh, you mean you have case or you mean you have turners, which are all the DSDs. And then I was having to sort of, it was almost like I was having an <laughs> argument with her <laughs> to prove like that I had what I said I had just because she hadn't heard of it. 
And like I say, it's obviously not her fault because she's not an expert in every rare medical condition. But yeah, that's quite stressful. It would be helpful if there was just a protocol for DSDs, just to sort of lessen that burden on us. When it comes to therapy, Claire, you have accessed therapy and specifically CBT. Did you find that helpful or not when it comes to anxiety or issues you might have explored around your DSD? I found it really helpful. Just understanding how I could change how I thought about things and how that would change how I felt about things. It was like a revelation to me. There were certain things where I felt I couldn't help how I felt and that's the way that I should feel and like feeling the grief or something like that. And CBT helped me to sort of embrace that I had those feelings, but also to look at how I could then think about them differently and cope with them differently to turn the feeling around. I didn't access it for the DSD. I accessed it because I was experiencing stress and anxiety at work. It was generally just great for me understanding anxiety and myself. A doctor said to you one day on this, whilst you're in his practice, you're not mad and you're not bad. So how did that feel hearing those words when it comes to anxiety, I guess? I actually found it to be a huge relief. I think like a lot of people, when they are experiencing mental health problems, I was really stuck in those feelings and really stuck in that thing of like, this is how I am and this is how I feel and I can't control it. And it was just really nice to know that I was normal. And yeah, that I wasn't mad. I didn't need protecting from myself or other people or I was, you know, that I was just experiencing a normal reaction to a difficult situation. When it comes to navigating the world and social life with a DSD, Claire, I imagine it must present a host of incredibly physical and social challenges as well. Your biological sex is female, so you call yourself a woman. However, you haven't always felt comfortable within female social groups. And I'm sure I'm sure women without a DSD would probably attest to that sometimes as well. How does your DSD inform that discomfort? And has it presented any advantages, for example, so code switching or something else? So I think women quite often, when they get together, they will talk about their biology. You know, it varies through the years. So when you're teenagers, you're talking about puberty, getting your period, all of those things. As you get older, women become mums and they're talking about becoming mums and their birthing experiences and all of that. I just can't access those conversations. I don't have anything to add. And that's not that I don't want those conversations to take place or that I resent those conversations. They're really important for women, but they're not conversations that I can contribute to or that I feel comfortable with so I just tend to then find often then I will go and end up in male company to (laughs) to, to avoid that I have varied interests in that regard so a lot of my male friends are into video games and that kind of thing so I got into video games and that kind of thing to be part of that world I just find it easy to slot into the two social groups and my friends are great that it's never being questioned this is just Claire fitting in where she fits in So what specifically then do stereotypical, I should say, male social groups do or make you feel that is more comfortable? I think it's just that, as I say, I think that female social groups often, female biology is just often a a huge part of their commonality. So with male groups, I just find that my interests are more can be more represented. I'm not saying other women don't like video games or don't talk <laughs> about other things. Yeah, um, let's avoid Gamergate if we can. <laughs> it's just more often, just more diverse in a male social group and less about biology and specifically female biology, obviously. Let's reflect on your journey now, Claire. 
living with a DSD, I imagine, has been at times very lonely, been dehumanizing and hugely stigmatized. How have all of these experiences shaped you into the person you are today? And what have they taught you about yourself? I think it's taught me that I'm quite resilient. Also, because I didn't have the life I thought I was going to have, I ended up having an interesting life that I didn't think I was going to have and seizing opportunities that perhaps I wouldn't have done had I got married and been a mum, as I imagined I would. So I went and I lived in China for a while and taught English. I went back to university later in life and got a law degree. I already had like a teaching degree. Wherever there's been enough, because I haven't had children and I haven't been limited in the way that women quite often are when they have children because that becomes their focus. Mm. I've had a chance to go and do things. I never imagined I would be the kind of person, I never thought I'd be the kind of person that would go and live in a country like China or do anything like that. But it just made me be more resilient and seek adventure or purpose elsewhere. And if you could go back and talk to the 18-year-old Claire who was in the hospital being diagnosed with MRKH or the Claire in her 20s who was married or the Claire who was worried about how the menopause would affect her, what would you say to her knowing what you do now? That it's going to be okay, that it will work out and that other things will happen and I will do those and I will have, I will still have stories to tell and interesting things to talk about and I will meet interesting people. And having a DSD isn't what defines me. It influences my experiences greatly, but it doesn't define me as a person and it doesn't limit me as a person other than I can't have biological children. I want to talk now, Claire, about the work you do for DSD families and the advocacy work you've done around intersex. So first of all, how many people in the UK have a DSD? And second of all, as I've said in the intro, a lot of people seem to be putting it in the LGBT umbrella now. Is that something you agree with or not? So the prevalence of DSDs is quite difficult to know because we don't have clear numbers. You see some common numbers, which I can kind of break down for you if you like. So you'll often see people say 1.7% of the population are born with a DSD or as common as redheads is a a, a common thing they'll say, which seems to be really, seems to be a common like internet sort of trope for anything (laughs) rare. (laughs) Um, The reality is that DSD, it means someone who is born with a difference in their reproductive development, in their sex development. The 1.7% statistic actually includes some people who have hormonal conditions that manifest later in life. So if we look at the prevalence at birth, people who are born different, that would be around actually about 0.2% of the population are born with a DSD. Like I say, we don't have an exact number because numbers aren't kept for this kind of thing. So, yeah, that's a rough estimate is about 0.2% of the population. The inclusion with the LGBT isn't necessarily helpful. I understand why LGBT groups are keen to include us. They see us as like a, a sexual minority in that we have our sex characteristics are different. But it masks our actual needs and our actual differences. So our differences are physiological. They're about our development. When it's linked to sexuality and identity, that's not clear. People begin to think that, well, they don't use use the term DSD, they use the term intersex, and they begin to think that this is something else. So it's something about not really being male or female or not really being properly part of our sex group or something like that. And 
I understand, and obviously gay people were once classified as being ill, like mentally ill, and they campaign, obviously they campaign against that because it's not true, they're not mentally ill, they they just have a different sexual orientation. So there's a real thing about depathologizing in LGBT, which I understand from their point of view, but from our point of view, that's not useful because we do actually have pathological medical conditions they have to be investigated many people with dsds have associated health issues all of this gets lost there's a thing at the moment about conversion therapy and you will see people saying oh lgbti conversion therapy there is no intersex conversion therapy it's a condition Um, it's not the sexuality yeah so i don't think it's been particularly helpful for those of us with dsds because i think then you get people who think like the people saying lgbti conversion therapy they think they're doing intersex work when actually it's not anything to do with us. You, you can't convert a health condition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but that is this is the state of play of the conversation. I know, yeah. So, Claire, there are also some people who identify as non-binary who will use the term intersex as an example for them to argue that sex is a biological spectrum. Now, most of my listeners will not know that this argument is currently taking place. We both know the answer to this, but for them, is it? And does it annoy no. you if they speak on your behalf? No, biological sex is not a spectrum. And yes, it is annoying when they speak on our behalf and they use us to make claims like that. Because again, it's not doing intersex work. It's just using us for a political point elsewhere where we don't belong. Obviously, I'm not non-binary. My medical condition has nothing to do with being non-binary. That's about someone's identity or their gender expression, which isn't to do with my lack of cervix. (laughs) It is actually genuinely a problem. When we were talking about statistics, that a few years ago, the government did a survey, an LGBT survey, and they decided for the first time they would include the I. And what they said in their findings was that quite a few people were clearly using intersex, not in a medical way. So they were having non-binary people then self-identify as intersex and answering the questions. And this means that people with DSDs are drowned out because often people with DSDs won't respond to LGBTI surveys because they don't realise that that means them. Or they might not be gay. Yeah, bi. so they will look. They yeah, they will look. At, well, I'm not gay, and I'm not bi, and I'm not trans. So why am I? Why would I fill out that survey? So then yeah. you have non-binary people and some trans people who will self-identify as intersex. They feel that that's a label that fits them too. So you end up with more of those voices and less of the so voices that people skewed. Yeah. yeah. There are also on this conversation trans activists who may argue that we should think about females in regard to body parts you disagree with that why is that my understanding of my body as female is based on my body (laughs) and it's based on my diagnosis like we said earlier when I was a teenager I thought I might be a man because I didn't understand my body and I didn't know my medical condition at that point and I remember sitting in the doctor's surgery they had done karyotype testing on me and the doctor's saying it came back normal. And I just said, oh, I am a girl then. And the doctor sort of looked at me as though I was odd and said, well, yes, of course you are. One of the most famous examples of an intersex person, Claire, or someone with a DSD is Casa Semenya. And a lot of my listeners will have no idea what happened with Casta and why she was treated in the way that she did and what is her DSD. So can you tell the listeners the truth and the reality 
Is Caster male? Is Caster female? And just basically what is going on with that? So Caster, as far as I know, has, and I don't know, I don't have access to Caster's medical records. As far as I know, she has a DSD called 5-alpha reductase deficiency. So this is something that happens in someone with XY chromosomes and with internal testes. And it means that when she was developing in utero, her body was unable to produce hormone called dihydrotestosterone, which is what creates the male phenotype of the body. So it creates the penis and all of the things that we would see at birth that we would associate with male. So Castor was born with a female phenotype. She was born with a vulva and a vagina like other girls. As she got older, she was able to produce some of that testosterone and respond to it. So her body masculinized slightly. That, in a nutshell, is her DSD. I would say she's female in that I feel that what's written on someone's birth certificate is a record of their observed sex phenotype at birth and her phenotype was observed to be female. I realise there are other people who want to say it's about gonads or it's about chromosomes. That isn't how it works in the real world. In the real world, when a baby is born, we look at their genitals and that's how we decide their sex. So in essence, she is female but has internal male genitalia or male testes. That is the yeah, that is reality. Yeah. yeah, she has characteristics that we associate with males internally, yeah. Okay. So given that, I believe when it comes to her participation, she was told by the IOC to reduce her testosterone levels in order to compete as a female. She refused to do that, and she hasn't competed since, as far as I'm aware. However and this is where it gets into hot potato territory, they did allow Laurel Hubbard, a transgender woman, to compete at Tokyo Olympics. So is that fair to you? No, it was really unfortunate. I don't think Castor really got a fair hearing. I don't think so either. I think she was used as an example, and that included as an example where trans was concerned by people. I think the rules that excluded her were specifically targeted towards Caster and the sport that she competed in. They're very, very tight rules, very specifically about the event she was interested in and her condition. I don't understand why it would be different for trans women, because trans women, Caster doesn't have the same advantages as a trans woman. So if we think about male puberty gives someone a huge advantage in terms of their physical development, this wouldn't apply to Caster. So it's really strange to me that Castor couldn't compete but that a trans woman can who has a greater especially in a a sport like weightlifting where a male frame is a much greater advantage I don't understand the reasoning behind that like I say Mm. I think she became like a political hot potato in that both sides were trying to use her as like a wet so the trans activists wanted to use her as a wedge issue for trans inclusion people who were against that wanted to use her if you could keep her out, you could keep the trans people out. Yeah. Kind of was the, the way of looking at it. I want to move on now to mental health support for people with DSDs, because that's something you really wanted to talk about. Why is that so important for people with DSDs? Because we do often, like I said, we often find out that we're different in our formative years, which is very difficult. Feelings like isolation are very common with people with DSDs because they can feel ashamed and they can feel there's no one to talk to, that no one understands them. Having a space to go and talk through that is really important and to sort out your own feelings. Like when we were talking earlier about telling other people, it's difficult to tell other people if you're not, if you haven't come to terms with it yourself. 
there isn't great mental health support out there. When I was diagnosed, there was no mental health support. They told me I would never have children. They sent me home. And that was the end of... Jesus. Yeah. And I've spoken to women with my DSD who were diagnosed after me who had a similar experience. They were just, you won't have children. Okay, off you go home. That's really not good enough. You need to be able to talk to someone about that. You need to process your feelings. I was lucky that my mum sat and talked to me a lot about it and we went through a lot but she was going through it herself so I know at times she felt she was treading on eggshells to not upset me I felt I was treading on eggshells to not upset her and we both could have done with being able to go and talk to someone else and sort out our own feelings as well as talking to each other. You said that some babies and infants with DSDs have surgeries performed on them which are approved by concerned parents or sometimes horribly ignorant ones why, in your view, are these surgeries harmful and how do we prevent them unless they are absolutely necessary? So, as you say, there are some necessary surgeries and there are some surgeries that aren't. One of the surgeries that people oppose is cosmetic surgeries to alter. Some children are born with genitals that look different to what we expect. This wasn't the case with me, so this isn't my experience, but this happens with some DSDs. And there can be like a psychosocial pressure to make the child's body look normal. And parents often feel that because, again, they're worried about how do they explain to other people about their baby's genitals looking different when it comes to, like, nappy changing. If people offer to change your baby's nappy and the genitals are different, how do you have a conversation about that? And parents can feel very stressed. And often this can lead to them deciding to have surgery to normalise, again, for want of a better word, their child's appearance. It's not necessary for that to be done. There are some cases where surgery must happen. So if a child can't urinate or if there are other issues that might endanger the child's health, then there could be a need for surgery. Because parents are isolated and they have no one to talk to, surgery is the solution being offered. That's what they will sometimes, not all parents, but they will sometimes end up choosing instead. If there isn't funding, as you say, going towards psychological support for intersex people. Where do you think this will lead in the debate around gender and sex? Do you think that there'll be some intersex people who might go down a certain path or have a certain surgery when they might not need to and they might just be able to accept their body as it is? Yeah, I think that's a possibility, especially because often the topic around sex and gender often is around surgically altering your body or taking hormones to alter your body to look a certain way. And that people with DSDs could feel that pressure because they have atypical bodies, so they would feel that pressure even more so. Also, again, with the LGBTI inclusion and people feeling they're doing intersex work because they include the I, that only takes away more funding and more opportunity to put funding where it's needed for us and to put advocacy where it's needed for us. At the moment, it just seems like it's all exacerbating the situation rather than helping it. I want to talk about freedom of speech now and this big tech argument when it comes to DSDs, Claire, because one consequence of you speaking your mind on this issue as an intersex person led to the frankly ridiculous decision to ban you from Twitter. Can you just explain to the listeners why you were banned, as I'm sure they would find it as baffling as I did when I heard it? Yeah, well, I don't have a definitive answer from Twitter about why I was banned. My account was often targeted. I talked about my DSD in a way that obviously wasn't welcome by everyone. (laughs) 
So my account was often targeted and I would often get into arguments with people in trying to explain DSDs and trying to explain how people with DSDs felt. My account, it was just banned one day. Twitter didn't give me a reason why. Um, I think they said it was multiple violations of their rules, which I questioned. I'd been in trouble once before, but I'd had it overturned. I'd been asking a question actually about transition of young people. And it had been banned and I appealed it because I was asking a question. I wasn't making a statement and that was overturned. And then suddenly my account a couple of weeks later was permanently banned for multiple violations of the rules. I appealed that. I was told then they then changed their decision to something else. I can't remember what it was. And I didn't agree with that. And I appealed that. And again, they just changed the decision to something else. And then they just told me to stop emailing them and they wouldn't respond to me anymore. I can't really say other than the fact that I was talking about my DSD in apparently a a non-accepted way by Twitter, which I could give a a clear reason. I wish I could say, I wish I could point to a tweet and say that was it, or this is what I'd said, or this is what I'd done. It just isn't clear to me Mm. why I was banned. I don't feel like I did anything hateful on that. People might have disagreed with me, but I wasn't hateful towards people. I wasn't rude. I wasn't insulting. Let's move on to children with gender dysphoria Claire as this was something you wanted to talk about as well and you said fertility is now treated by some of them who are kind of becoming more inclined to maybe transition or maybe have surgery and fertility is almost treated like a very blasé thing can you explain what you meant by that and the case study of Kira Bell for the listeners who don't know who that is So Kira Bell was a a young woman who thought she was trans, I think is the way to describe Kira Bell. And she chose, what she chose, she took puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and she now regrets that. And she wishes that there had been more adults around to have asked questions and encouraged her to examine how she was feeling and why, rather than go down a medical route. The effects of especially cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers tend to be downplayed. One impact is infertility. Mm. And what you'll hear is sort of trans activists saying, well, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter. I find that incredibly anxiety-inducing because infertility is difficult to live with. And I think when we're talking about children in their teens, they don't really know. You might think at 13, well, I don't care, I don't want children. But you have no idea how you'll feel 10 years from then, 20 years from then. And it seems to be just accepted that 13-year-olds really understand what that means. And I don't think they do. I don't think they can. I just worry. And I think as well, I think it's sort of contradicted in that a lot of trans adults want fertility treatments. So they themselves struggle with infertility. And yet they will talk about children and say it doesn't matter. Of course, they don't want children because they're trans. But that doesn't work as an answer and I really worry that young people like Kira Bell when they grow up a little bit more and they're a little bit older will end up regretting the decisions that were made and the fact that they have limited some of their life choices Mm, we're seeing it more and more aren't we especially kind of post-surgeries and stuff which you know I've interviewed Sinead and she says that there's a tsunami of transition is coming which is just terrifying to think about really you used to be a teacher claire for children with send or special educational needs and disabilities and you said you saw some of this behavior in them as you did with gender dysphoric children what are those similarities then and why did they worry you well i think 
it's now understood that there is a prevalence of comorbidities with a lot of children who experience gender dysphoria, things like autism and mm. mental health issues. And I often, when I see it described how they approach their thinking, how they respond to certain things, I see in that a lot of the children that I've worked with who find things difficult, who find being told no difficult, or who find being told you have to follow this rule difficult, or, you know, just... Black and white thinking as well can't really handle it that well, can they? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're autistic or if you have special needs, often you can feel like you don't fit in. And I think being told that you are born in the wrong body and that this can be sorted and then you'll fit in could feel very compelling to a young person in that position. And we're really not doing enough to question that and what alternatives we could give to these children where they can learn to accept their body and learn to accept who they are and live like that and be fine. Let's reflect on this part of your journey, Claire. You said you always wanted to make a meaning out of your DSD. How have you done that? And what effect has that had on your mental health in the process? Well, I think learning to advocate first for myself and then for others had a huge impact on my mental health and how I thought about DSDs. It gave me a strength in myself and a strength, I hope, for other people to tell their stories and to give their point of view across. I think I now understand my DSD in terms of my story and how that fits in my life and who I am now, rather than it being this scary thing that was going to ruin my life because it wasn't the life I wanted to have. And now I can look and I can say, I can look and I can think, well, I did this and I would never have done that without a DSD. For all I'm banned from Twitter now, I had a popular Twitter account. I had people listen to me. People heard and were interested in what I wanted to say. And that was a huge revelation and a huge comfort as well in terms of tackling like the isolation feelings and the stress and the anxiety of feeling isolated and ashamed. And I hope that in me doing that, that gives other people with DSDs the strength to feel that they can talk about, or not if they don't want to, but if they want to, that they can talk about it too. So I think, yeah, it's, that it's given me that meaning. There's always getter as well, if you want to go on to that alternative one. <laughs> I have, yeah, I've seen people talking about I haven't joined. I have. You won't get banned, I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> That's well, that's nice. <laughs> Before we move on, Claire, as well, what has it taught you about yourself? Has there been anything that you've learned which has surprised you? Just that I'm not the person I thought I was, really. I was. I thought I was. Well, I thought I was one person until the age of 18. And not that there's anything wrong with the person I thought I was going to be, that I would be a mum and I would raise my children and I would probably like my sisters have done, you know, live kind of where I grew up and live a life similar to my sisters and my mom. And and again, I'm not criticizing their life. I love their lives for them as well. And they love their lives. But just that I could go and do things and try things and experience new things. That I'm not afraid. And that I'm not afraid to speak my own truth, even if people don't want to hear it. And I quite like that I found that out about myself, that I'm a brave person we have come to our final topic of conversation claire and it's one i try and have if we have time with all of my special guests which is a general natter and chat about mental health so firstly how would you say your mental health is at the moment um it's pretty good at the moment i think i had a tough time last year i would been living away during the pandemic and i moved back home i hadn't seen my family for a while 
and moving back home was difficult not because I was seeing my family that was lovely yeah. but just sort of seeing how everyone had changed and then settling into you know a new routine and then also I had the menopause worries and things like that I just seemed to have a lot sort of come on me at one point so I had a, a couple of months of not feeling great but just working through that at the moment I'm great thank you excellent what age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, that's a good question. I think my teacher who introduced journaling helped me to begin to understand that. It wasn't particularly framed in terms of mental health because that just wasn't how the conversation was back then. Although maybe it was given the language at the time, but not, yeah. not as we would talk about it now. I think it was really in my adulthood when I experienced stress and anxiety through work and I ended up going to see my GP. That's when I really began to realise what mental health was and how it impacted on me and recognising the symptoms of it in myself. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like a part of you had changed or maybe a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or, on the other hand, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I'm not sure what the first conversation was. I I guess like it would have been maybe with that teacher. Like I say, not using the language you would have done now. It made a big difference to me just that someone else saw what was happening to me, that it affirmed that I felt a certain way and that I wasn't wrong for feeling a certain way, but that also I could, by talking to someone, Sometimes that's just that helps you to let it go, doesn't it? It's just putting it out there rather than just keeping it in and internalizing it and just worrying about it. And then probably for the first time as an adult would be with my GP talking about mental health. And actually, no, probably with my mother before then. So talking to her about how I was feeling and her saying, go and see your GP, like you're not well go and see your GP and go and get the help that you need and again just having a firm that I felt a certain way and that was okay but that I needed help with that and how I was coping with it it's quite freeing I think to not be stuck in your own head. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health so it could be uh, something that someone says to you it could be a sound it could be a sensation a social environment a book film whatever it is or have you not figured all of them out yet? I definitely haven't figured all of them out yet. And it can still, when anxiety hits me, it can still take me by surprise. What I figured out is how to handle when it hits better rather than seeing when it's coming. And you can't avoid triggers anyway because you don't always know. So, I mean, you can avoid triggers if you know them, but you don't always know what might trigger something. Like I never thought, I thought with the menopause, I thought everything I felt about my DSD had been dealt with. And it never occurred to me that in the future that would change again. So I didn't see that trigger coming. But what I do have is the ability to deal with it differently. And I think that's the important thing for me. And then conversely, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Definitely utilising CBT, understanding my feeling, what's causing it, and then trying to look at it from a different way and reframe my response to it. It's been incredibly useful. I think some people can find talking about it to exhaustion useful. I don't always, like revisiting is not always useful. Ruminating on something isn't useful for me. I realise to some people that they do find that useful just to talk something until it's out of their system and to keep talking about it until it's out of their system. 
I find it easier to sort of address it, work out a way forward and then have that plan going. And also talking to other people and reaching out. So last year when I was struggling after I'd moved back home, just reaching out to my family and saying I'm really struggling. And then they helped me to distract myself and to do other things so that I wasn't lost in my feelings and and just sitting and feeling bad and then feeling worse because that's all I was thinking about. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. For an actual mental health book, my therapist when I did CBT recommended CBT for dummies. And there was a textbook and a workbook, and I got them both. And I find that useful now for revisiting the concepts that I did in therapy and refreshing my memory of what to do and just revisiting the approach and reapplying it for myself. And I've recommended that book to loads of people, people who I think might CBT, I recommend CBT quite a lot to people. If they're not sure if it might help, I'll often recommend that book just as a way to look at it before they go and access therapy, perhaps. So I, I find that really useful. I don't know if I have like a book necessarily. Oh, this might sound odd. You might want to cut this out. (laughs) Anyway, my favorite book when I was a teenager was Catch-22. And the main character in it, he has this thing where everyone else around him thinks he's mad, but he knows he's not. He's a fighter pilot in World War II and he doesn't want to fly anymore. And I kind of, I quite enjoy that. Just because, again, like the, you're not mad, you're not bad. You know, if you're responding to something, it can be reasonable to feel a certain way or to have certain feelings. So I, I quite enjoy that, but I don't know if I, I don't know if that's like a good mental health bible. No, I think it's good. Just uh, it just works for me. I just like yeah. it, the parallels. And as a final question, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, people with DSDs, people without? feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think creating a space as you're doing with the podcast, which is really important, creating a space where people can talk and be listened without being interrupted or other people feeling that they have to have a say in that person's mental health experience or their life experience or whatever. And normalising conversations about mental health. So with DSDs, it's something we try to do, just normalising the feelings that people will experience when they are diagnosed or when they realise they're different. And opening up those conversations so that people don't feel shame or stigma, because I think that's such a huge contributory factor, not just people with DSDs, for people with other mental health conditions or other issues. Any shame and stigma is only going to add to your mental health and not talking about it and not opening up the spaces and not making people feel welcome even if they're talking about their experience in a way that's difficult for us to hear allowing someone to do that and hearing what they're saying and why they feel the way they do is really important and being open to difference what a great note to end on claire graham thank you so much for coming on the just checking in podcast and talking to me thank you for having me it's been great well that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just checking in podcast i want to say a massive thank you to claire for being my special guest for this episode and for checking in with me i'll chuck some links to where you can find out more about dsd families and the work claire does in the show notes i'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode if you've liked what you've heard give it a share on social media tell your friends or work colleagues about it 
or if you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing at Venom and want to support us even further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Every penny really does count. Or if you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation by visiting our GoFundMe that is in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Thank you.